The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. I'm Karen Cho, live from Davos. Hello, Karen. Hello, everybody. I'm Maddie Drury, live in London. And these are your headlines this morning. The World Health Organization says it's too early to label the coronavirus outbreak a global health emergency as China puts 10 cities on lockdown and the death toll rises to 25. The World Economic Forum prepares to close out the week with the US-EU trade tensions at a high, but Germany's finance minister Olaf Scholz tells CNBC he's optimistic the two sides will agree on free trade and digital taxes. I think we could be confident that speaking will make it possible to find a solution which fits to all uh, in the world. In the end we know that uh, trade is something that is more successful for anybody if there are not too many barriers. The euro hovers near a seven-week low after ECB President Christine Lagarde strikes a more cautious note while giving little away about the launch of a massive strategy review. A lot of hard work is going to be put into the exercise, but I would not exclude, preclude or anticipate uh, how we are going to deliver. Intel shares jumping in extended trade as strong demand in the fourth quarter helps the company beat estimates and bolsters expectations for a chip sector turnaround in 2020. Welcome to Squawk Box. We are live in Davos still. It is the final day of the World Economic Forum and still a terrific lineup for you. Plenty of people still left on the mountain today. This hour we'll be hearing from the German finance minister Olaf Scholz, Peng Huagang, who is the secretary general of SASAC, the CEO of MTR Corporation, Jacob Kam. Of course, we've been talking about the coronavirus and Hikmet Eresk, who is the CEO of Western Union, as we talk about the connecting up of many financial markets still, Mandy. So terrific conversations coming your way as well. Sounds like your throat's getting a little sore there being out in the cold all week. So it'd be good to have you back here in the comfort of a warm London office. <laughs> now we've also got European corporate earnings on deck for you folks. So don't miss the CEOs of Ericsson and Givaudan on their latest results, which have all come out this morning. So we'll be talking about that with their CEOs. Karen? Mandy, the death toll from the coronavirus has risen to 25, while more than 800 people have now been infected. That's according to China's National Health Commission. Wuhan, the city where the epidemic is believed to have emerged, remains on lockdown, while China has halted all transport services and flights from nine other cities. Authorities still fear the virus could spread rapidly over coming days, with millions of Chinese set to travel across the country and abroad for the week-long Lunar New Year holiday. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization has stopped short of declaring the virus a global health emergency. However, the WHO Director General said it was an emergency in China and that the epidemic could still develop into a more concerning issue. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. Make no mistake, 
This is, though, an emergency in China. But it has not yet become a global health emergency. It may yet become one. Speaking right here in Davos, the CEO of Novartis, Vaz Narasimhan, told CNBC officials in China and internationally have been swift to properly tackle the outbreak. It's great to see the response that we've had from governments around the world. I think the Chinese government has been very transparent. You see that they've been telling updates to the global community on an ongoing basis. Certainly, the human-to-human transmission is something now that everyone's going to be watching very carefully. But I think all the right things are happening. I mean, you've seen uh, some of the actions the Chinese government has taken. I know uh, critical uh, disease control agencies around the world are getting really active. So we'll have to wait and see. There's a lot we don't know. And I think until we have all of the facts, it's really difficult to judge. You have to get all of the facts together, be thoughtful before you you take action. So let's just get into that response from authorities. Mm. The lockdown that you're seeing in a couple of the main hubs there in China, quite dramatic action. And uh, we'll see whether that is uh, deemed to have been the right move down the track. But at this Mm. stage, very different response to what we saw in SARS. Also, when it comes to this particular time of year in China, we know it's the Lunar New Year celebrations. Right. So millions of people are about to take to public transport to the roads, Mandy. And, uh, you know, what you've seen too, not just in the main hub of Wuhan, but other major cities, mm. the cancellation of key celebrations. So there are concerns about the spread. And just uh, a couple of points that really captured my interest. I think a lot of us are wondering, what is this virus? How did it start? And so far, there's been a suggestion that maybe this Wuhan virus was passed to humans from snakes. Now, we heard about some market, an illegal market in China, but this is a sort of twist on events. And, of course, we still don't know how it, uh, just how dangerous it can be Mm -hmm. and exactly how it could morph over the course of the next few weeks, Mandy. Well, there's a lot of information we just don't know yet, right? Because it is a new strain, as you say. And, in fact, the coronavirus, you know, the common cold is part of the coronavirus family. But if you've got a new strain, you don't know how it could mutate or evolve from here. I think what's also interesting is the market reaction here, because the market is just trying to wrap its hands around what exactly they're dealing with. And I noted just a couple of days ago, Goldman Sachs put out a note about the potential impact on oil prices. And they said that the outbreak of a coronavirus in China that is obviously now an international threat could knock off about $3 a barrel. Uh, from a barrel of crude, largely that demand loss would be coming from jet fuel. But they're using the SARS example as the indication. But this could be a completely different animal from the SARS situation because back then Asian airlines registered an 8% decline in annual traffic. But, you know, carriers elsewhere, Karen, weren't that affected. But, you know, if we're dealing with something that is internationally yes. travelling because of, as you say, the hundreds of millions of Chinese for the Lunar New Year that are potentially travelling around not just Asia but maybe even the globe, mm-hmm. then you could be dealing with something that has an even greater demand impact on uh, on um, on oil prices and, uh, and, and jet fuels specifically. No, so it's just something we're trying to, ra- to wrap uh, our head around. Yeah, the point you raise around domestic travel, much more aggressive, I guess, on the expansion of budget airlines in recent years. Right. So the amount of travel opportunities I've been stunned about every airline CEO we've spoken to effectively has a flight going to Wuhan or out of Wuhan of a day. Mm. So it does tell you just how connected that market is and the measures you see to try and lock down cities. We didn't see that necessarily during other virus crises that mm. have been spreading. So it may have a bigger impact. Now, when you mention oil prices, 
We were talking to Goldman Sachs the other day and the lead oil analyst, and we are actually finally seeing some upside here, not fake upside, but real upside in the oil market. Now, what you say about the now the expectations around the demand story, that's significant because it's just destroyed that trajectory, that momentum that we're seeing at the start of the year. So in many ways, it's starting to emerge as a black swan for the demand story. When it comes to China, I also saw some forecasts suggesting maybe the first quarter could be affected to the tune of 1%. The question is whether that 1% would just be kicked out to the rest of this year to following quarters or whether that would be shaving off Mm. the overall growth rate for this year for China, Mandy. You know, we we also have to watch exactly what's going to happen at the WHO because I guess the arguments to declare a global health emergency is the fact that then there would be a coordinated international response. It would also mean that there would be the sharing of much more data, such as patient data, you know, tracking responses that are working, responses that are not working. So there is there is an argument to do that, but I guess they don't want to spark panic. And one of the reasons that there is quite a lot of fear out there in the markets is the fact that the Chinese government is more transparent, you know, with many more timely updates. And that, of course, can be good or bad. You know, constant news can be good or yes. bad. Sometimes, uh, you know, maybe too much information can be a bad thing when it certainly sparks a lot of angst that may, but may turn out to be unnecessary. But at this stage we're just trying to work it out aren't we mandy plenty of ministers and ceos of drug companies here on the mountains so plenty of people to talk to yes. about this virus and effectively what they've said to me as soon as it gets to a major market so like you know the united states which mm. it has done they know what they're dealing with they know how quickly it can spread they know exactly um, the sort of the background of this virus and they can start investigating it so of course drug companies are piling into this space looking at a vaccine at this point also, the response in China, just incredible, building a new hospital. Mm-hmm. We know that buildings can go up pretty quickly in China, but uh, Wuhan is building a new 1,000-bed hospital to try and treat those affected. I think is uh, pretty incredible that you've seen that response on it, the ground. It really is. We're going to park so- that conversation there for... I was just going to say, there's so much at stake here for China, right? They've made so many efforts over the past year to try and mitigate the negative impact, economically speaking and financially speaking, of the of of the trade war. um, That you know they don't want to see all of that just suddenly being undone by uh, by you know a health threat. You know this is this is something that they're taking very very seriously because if there is serious economic knockdown effect, then um, they're just going to have to go back to the drawing board. Um, So you know I think a lot a lot is at stake here. I just want to also mention that I just this morning got an email from um, the school of my children in Australia, in Sydney, uh, giving some coronavirus information about a strategy. If you have, uh, for example, if you've been to China over the over the summer holidays and you come back and you've got a fever, what exactly you should do. So it seems as if, um, you know, from macro to micro level, uh, everyone's taking this seriously. Right. It's a global story and just your point on trade. I think it's a fascinating one. We all knew we were a little bit too fixated on the trade deal phase one. We saw a market and we're all wondering if there was going to be a black swan event. But it's just a reminder to keep a broad perspective when you're investing in these markets in 2020. Speaking of which, uh, let's talk about some of the conversations here on the mountain. As the German finance minister Olaf Scholz has been talking to CNBC he says he is confident uh, that Europe and the United States, uh, two of the, the key countries, of course, are involved in potentially the next trade spat. He's confident that they will reach a trade agreement and find a solution on digital taxes. Speaking to Jeff right here in Davos, Schultz said the European proposal is on the table. No, not really. I think we know that there is a need for debating about trade. Uh, we already started with it far away from today and uh, made proposals about the 
free trade agreement between the European Union and uh, the United States, it was stopped by the United States, this debate. And when we now discuss about the proposals from Europe, for instance, uh, for finding an agreement which are on the table, I think we could be confident that speaking will make it possible to find a solution which fits to all uh, in the world. In the end, we know that uh, trade is something that is more successful for anybody if there are not too many barriers. It sounds to me as though you feel that there is already significant progress being made. Is that accurate? This would be too much, but there, is, there are talks. And uh, I will remember you that there had been an agreement between President uh, Trump and President Juncker that this trade talks should start. There is preparation on both sides, and so I hope that this in the end will help to find a good solution and there is a great willingness to, to find something. In the end, we are, as the United States were for a very long time, very much in, in favor of uh, a free trade and uh, so it's not too, too difficult to continue with that. The, the President said here many times that the Europeans are turning out to be harder negotiators than the Chinese, which I guess is a compliment of sorts here. But we know he's got a limited attention span sometimes. Do you think he might get irritated? And when he gets irritated, then he tends to lash out. I think that uh, President Trump is uh, representing his uh, country. He is the elected president and we will uh, work with him as it is absolutely necessary. The European Union is the greatest place for our economy in the world. Uh, it is the strongest place in the end, if you count the figures. And so it is a fair partnership that is possible, and we are working to make it uh, a great thing. You said on the record that you thought we'd probably have a global digital tax in place by 2020 or during 2020, I think those were your words. We don't seem to have that much progress yet. We know that there's been some tit-for-tat over the prospect of a French tax, a go-it-alone English tax, a British tax, or a go-it-alone Italian tax. Are you concerned that if some of these countries push ahead with these ideas, it may be the German auto industry that gets tariffed? My view is that we are very near to um, an international agreement. So there had been a lot of talks in G20, in G7, in the OECD, the right places to do so, about how to better the way of taxing companies and corporates all over the world. One aspect which is discussed very much is the question of uh, a global minimum taxation, where we agree very much also with the United States, because they did something like this with their so-called guilty tax. And so it is highly likely that we get a proposal from the OECD in the beginning of this year, which could be discussed in the next months and which could come to a solution. And this is the same with the more difficult question of how we tax the rate um, digital platforms, for instance, because there is a need to change a situation. And anyone understood that this is part of an agreement which is not just related to digital companies. And as we know, there is really a proposal possible from the OECD also in the beginning of this year so that we can discuss it in the next months. Anyone who has um, some experience about how lives goes should understand that this is the time for a global agreement and not for global dispute.
Schultz also welcomed the European Central Bank's decision to review its monetary policy and targets, but insisted that central bank independence remains paramount. Germany fought very hard to have an independent ECB. Don't give me the independent line. Come on. You must be happy to see that interest rates at these levels are now going to be looked at again. We don't know what will happen, but at least there should be an investigation or a review. It is very good that the ECB announced that, she, that it is working in this field. But uh, just again, we worked very hard to have an independent European Central Bank and we support this independence. So in response, the euro hit a seven-week low against the greenback after the cautious outlook from the European Central Bank President, Christine Lagarde. That's as the ECB chief laid out the framework for the bank's first strategy review since 2003. The process could prompt a shift in the ECB's main goals and as it explores ways to integrate climate concerns. The central bank could also reconsider its main inflation target which it has for years not been able to hit. Well, let's join Annette Weisbach from Frankfurt. Uh, Annette, great of you to join us today. To what degree did market watchers get what they wanted from Christine Lagarde? Uh, well, actually, I think there wasn't that much of expectations for that meeting, uh, meaning um, we got some sense that actually the ECB is really very open-minded to um, get, uh, consider also a change in the inflation target, a change of how inflation is calculated. But perhaps, first of all, take a listen of what Christine Lagarde was saying on the topic that they even could look into changing how inflation is calculated, that inflation perhaps gets closer to the feeling of people on the street, how prices are developing. Take a listen. We will not um, leave any stone unturned. And how we measure inflation is clearly something that we need to look at. Are we going to resolve the issues? I doubt it. Um, you know, clearly the issue of housing and the distinction between the owner occupancy versus the non-owner occupancy, uh, the reality and the perception, the difference between large urban centers and, uh, and rural areas, all of that is, is infinitely difficult to apprehend and to, and to calculate, but we need to look at it. So when it comes to policy action, not much is expected for the full year this year, even though one could also argue that there's a window of opportunity some economists are seeing in the second quarter because the economy is doing a little bit better than previously expected. And also the ECB is seeing that in their wording. So we might wait until March when we get a new updated um, yeah, forecast for GDP and also inflation. Perhaps that might then warrant some policy action, but that's a lot of fantasy here. Um, I guess the big focus this year will be the strategic review and especially what they are going to do with their inflation target. And here the expectations are that they are getting closer to what the Fed is for example, doing that they have a 2% bang in line inflation targeted, not something more complicated, which they are currently having like close to but below 2%. That gives too much room for interpretation. 
But having said that, 2% is higher than um, the one which we're currently having. So meaning any policy action could actually be pushed more in, in the future by changing that target. Also, something which could happen is a symmetric target, something Mario Draghi really liked as an idea, meaning that the ECB also have to have a certain overshooting of inflation that would even be more uh, yeah, hawkish in a way. Um, so I guess everything is up for change at the ECB for now. One other critical issue is the, the issue of climate change and how they will reflect that in their investment decision. And here she was saying that they actually do think about changing their 200 billion euro of corporate bond portfolio towards a more, yeah, ESG-friendly uh, investment portfolio, and that could change a lot also in the investment horizon when it comes to corporate bonds. So I guess the ECB is doing the biggest change or is undergoing the biggest change since its inception, most likely, because the strategic review in 2003 was by far not that bold and by far not that encompassing. So it will be an interesting year. And I guess Christine Lagarde will have a lot of discussions internally because um, we already know that there is a rift in the governing council when it comes, for example, to climate change issues. With that, Karen, over to you to Davos. Uh, Meta, thank you very much for that. I'm going to just steer over to some 5G news. Uh, Ericsson, a company at the forefront of the supply of in the new infrastructure that we're seeing coming, is reporting numbers today for the fourth quarter and the full year. Just to put this in context for you, there's been this fight playing out over business between Ericsson and Nokia, which you're seeing taking place with this rebalancing the market away from Huawei. So this should set the scene for a good set of numbers. So let me just tell you what we're seeing for the fourth quarter. Sales at 66 6.4 billion Swedish krona. The sales growth was 1% adjusted for comparable units and currency. A reduction in North America was compensated with by growth in other markets, primarily in the Middle East and Northeast Asia. Reported sales grew 4%. The uh, numbers when it comes to the operating income level at 6.5 billion Swedish krona versus a, a loss of 2.6 billion previously, the margin at 9.7 percent. And this is uh, no, this is effective for the fourth quarter. Just for the full year, to give you a perspective, for the 12 months, sales increased 4 percent. So you might be thinking that uh, this company would do a little bit better given the trend around 5G. But there have been issues where the company's been dealing with investigations by the SEC and the DOJ, so that's had a bit of an impact. Also, there's been a lot of reports, and I've been speaking to a lot of people on the mountain here this week, about what's taking place on 5G, and there's been a little bit of uncertainty in that Chinese market. And this is flagged up uh, about in the third paragraph in the report today where they're talking about it's still too early to assess possible volumes and price levels for the expected deployment of 5G in China. They expect that the initial little challenging margins will shift to positive margins over the lifespan of the contracts. Company also going on to talk about overall numbers. 58 commercial 5G agreements so far is what we're seeing. But we will dive into the commentary a little bit more later in the show. Don't miss Ericsson's CEO, Boya Erkum, who will join us live on the program to talk through the results, Mandy. We're looking forward to that. Thanks very much, Karen. Coming up on the show, the man in charge of China's state-owned enterprises tells CNBC why the Western impression of, quote, state-owned is wrong.
The data in this podcast is brought to you by Refinitiv, our global data and analytics partner for Squawk Box Podcast, a road to Davos. Refinitiv is an open data ecosystem powering the financial markets through an open platform, advanced technologies, and deep domain expertise. Learn more at refinitiv.com forward slash Davos. TGI Friday, welcome back to Squawk Box. Let's take a look at the overnight markets here where the US markets were mixed in their close. But uh, just bear in here because the Nasdaq closed above 9,400 for the very first time ever, which means the Nasdaq closed at a new record high. Clearly, tech stocks are among those that closed at record highs. We also saw gains in utilities also at record highs. What didn't do so well and hasn't done well at all this week is energy, which has lagged now for the third straight week. We did, however, see these markets bounce from their lows after the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared that the coronavirus spread does not yet constitute an international public emergency. Let's take a look at the Asian markets. Uh, we've got a mixed picture here with the Nikkei 225 and the Hang Seng just marginally to the upside. Uh, the Shanghai and the Shenzhen are actually closed now. They're going to be closed for the Lunar New Year holiday. They'll reopen on the 31st of January and uh, also closed overnight was South Korea, one of the other major markets for the Lunar New Year holiday. And we'll be taking a look at what's happening with Europe after it closed yesterday down for its fourth Great session. Karen, back over to you in Davos. Mandy, let's talk about the economy. Uh, President Trump could face an economic calamity before the election, according to billionaire investor George Soros. The Democratic donor told his guests at an informal dinner right here on the mountain that the administration had managed to overheat an already buoyant economy and that, quote, an overheated economy can't be kept boiling for too long. Soros also took aim at the US-China phase one trade deal, saying Chinese President Xi Jinping is, quote, trying to exploit Trump's weaknesses. Wall Street has continued to hit fresh highs since the deal was signed last week. Here in Davos, corporate and government leaders have been giving a mixed re- review of the pact. I like the fact that the phase one deal was done and, you know, I think people are picking at defaults, but I think any time you get two parties negotiating and you can make some progress, that builds momentum. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that that happened. The problem is not solved. And on the other hand, I think that uh, especially the technology divide is creating the risk. And the risk is that at a certain moment, the two biggest economies tend to uh, polarize uh, around them, uh, dividing the global economy into two. But we've been through a lot of pain to get where we're at today. And so the question is, is it all worth it? We didn't really make any kind of structural change. And it cost us about 10% of Wisconsin farmers are gone. I think that we're not as far along as we're being told we are. A key criticism of the phase one deal is that it does not focus on structural issues, including Chinese state subsidies. CNBC's Qian Zhen sat down with the head of China's state-owned assets supervision and administration commission and asked him about reform. Frankly, there is almost no subsidies left which target SOEs or a specific ownership over the years of reform of SOEs. From the perspective of market competition, it is reasonable request to regulate government subsidies towards enterprise of all types. Many are still concerned about state-owned uh, firms behind China's corporate debt. How do you cope with the debt risk? 
Many enterprises in China support its operations with bank loans, which made the debt-to-asset ratio relatively high. We took a variety of measures and swapped debt for equity through marketization and lowered debt-to-asset ratio this way. We also established some specialized funds in the process of reform, and this also helped. Overall, we think debt is still well under control, and there is no risk over corporate debt. How can foreign companies play a role um, in China's reform on its state-owned enterprises? Where do you see opportunities for foreign investment? China's SOE reform is very open. In recent years, we emphasize on promoting mixed ownership reform to work together with private enterprise as well as foreign investment to make the asset structure more versatile. This improved the management quality and makes enterprise more dynamic. This also provides better opportunities for foreign-owned enterprises to participate in SOEs. In the past, foreign capital mostly forms joint ventures with SOEs, but with the current reform, it can actively participate in inventory asset management. Our understanding of state-owned enterprises and that of Westerners are still very different. Many Westerners think that SOEs belong to the state, but reformed SOEs have become marketized enterprises. We follow rules of market and rules of globalization and are completely independent in the market. In market competition, SOEs are completely independent and separate from the government. Who is the shareholder behind a company isn't important, but it is important to follow the rules of market and business. It is pointless to just focus on who are the shareholders behind a company. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.